My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Growing up is hard to do. It's not easy being a kid. It's not easy being a teenager. But it can be tough to finally become an adult, especially like in your 20s. There's all kinds of pressure that you're young and you're old at the same time. There's pressure to figure it all out. You got to find a job, find someone to love, find your place in the world. It's even harder to navigate that when you don't feel like the world wants you to be your authentic self. So the new series, Bree and Matt Gets a Life, uh, Sasha Lee Henry is the creator, isn't like anything we've seen before on Canadian TV. And Sasha Lee Henry is intentional about that. She's committed to telling stories that we, especially in Canada, don't often get to hear. And she wants to push the boundaries of, of how they're told. Let me explain. The show is about Bria Mack, a 25-year-old black woman who's just finished university in Ontario. She's trying to find a job. She's trying to move out of her mom's house. She's trying to, and nothing makes me sound older than saying this, navigate the world of hookup culture, all with the uh, help of a pretty unlikely sidekick. All along the way, the show takes aim at white saviors, racism in the workplace, misogyny. It's a really funny show. It's a show that makes you think. And one of the parts of this conversation that I can't stop thinking about is when we talk about how it's a show about the differences between generations. And Sasha Lee Henry at one point says, I wanted them both to be wrong. Sasha Lee Henry is the showrunner and creator of the series. She joined me, and you can imagine my delight when I heard this, from St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador. Sasha, how are you? I'm doing very well, actually. Thank you for asking. Very well. Happy to be in St. John's. What's the weather like there today? It's beautiful. The air is very crisp and the sun is bright and high in the sky. It's had like a a nice wash over the entire city. I'm so glad you got the one sunny day a year while you're there. That's so good. I know. (laughs) I know. Um, Congrats on the show. I really love it. Thank you very, very much. I'm really, really happy to hear that. And I've been super happy with the overall response from from the audience in Canada at large. Yeah. So talk to me about Bria Mack. When the show starts, where is she in her life? She is at a crossroads that she's just kind of finally admitted that she's feeling a bit burnt out. Rhea, you know, took her a little longer than she would have liked to even finish school. She was very much that kind of type A model child of an immigrant and is ready to just kind of chill for a bit and exhale and figure out what is it she actually wants to do and what a career for her would look like. She finds a job in an office. And and what happens to her when she finds a job at that office? Well, she finds a job at an office. It's the first job she can get, and she kind of just takes it because she needs to. She ends up being the only Black person working in an office in an all-white accounting department. And uh, as I like to say, microaggressions and hilarity ensues pretty quickly for Bria. What do you mean microaggressions and hilarity ensues pretty quickly? <laughs> well, by that I mean that, you know, she experiences some of the things that I think, you know, there's a big generational difference between her and some of her coworkers. 
And there's also cultural differences, her being a Black woman. And so her hair gets touched um, pretty early on in the season. We see someone kind of reach out to touch her hair and she has a reaction to that. And the hilarity comes from, you know, not necessarily sitting in those awkward moments as she experiences them, but what we call the show kind of like these fantasy departures of where she goes, where she can react, you know, this really extreme version of her reaction and how she really feels on the inside, but doesn't feel that she can display, you know, in real time, in real life. And so she has Black Attack, as you mentioned, her her sidekick, her confidant, her imaginary hype girl who, um, you know, connects her to this fantasy world where she can kind of be who she is and say what she wants without consequences in the same way. I mean, that's where I think the show becomes really, really interesting because like, as you mentioned, Bria is the only black person in this entirely white office. And, you know, she's experiencing all these microaggressions and, you know, she's experiencing all this, this inequality. I just want to like stay on that for a second about, about black Mm. attack, because I want to make sure that people are fully sure of what we're talking about here. It's a, it's a character that shows up and, and says what to her and, and gives what to her. Well, what she represents is that inner dialogue that we all have. For Bria, it turns out to be a very pro-Black, hyper-conscious, but wild and zany character played by a real-life person that kind of offers the other side. So, you know, in uh, one instance when her hair gets touched, she pushes Bria to, like, hold up the entire office and kind of read them the commandments of working with a young Black woman. And she really goads her sometimes into taking more bigger risks and ballsier moves and not always for the better uh, for Bria, but it helps. It's like, she's like a steam valve for those moments. I mean, that's what I, again, that's what I found interesting about this show, because you're right. There are moments where Bria gets her hair touched really early on and, and the character Black Attack comes out and says like, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could react this way or, or you, you know, you should react this way to this thing that so many, you know, black women have to deal with. But then there are moments that I feel that, Bria is actually at war with this like conscience. Like she's she's kind of arguing yes. arguing with her. Yeah, definitely. We see that at the end of um towards the end of episode 1 for example when you know she's in the phone store and she's kind of overpaid more than she wanted to on this outstanding bill. And Black Attack really wants her to go off and to like, you know, do, get this money back and demand a refund and all of that. But what Bria recognizes in her consciousness is like, I'm a black woman in public. I can't just go off on this man in this phone store like that. We got to find a different approach. And so even though that might be what she feels desires to do, her emotions might be urging her that way. There's still a part of her, of her mind where she knows that there, there's certain limits to that in reality. So, so where, where did that come from? What was interesting to you about having that, that dialogue go on? What was interesting to me is there's kind of like this inner and outer self that we present. And this character helped us explore the relationship with that. I do think, you know, Bria's, the scope of of Black Attack does uh, deal a lot with race and, and, you know, her anxieties when she's in certain awkward um, situations. But I do think everyone has a Black Attack. They definitely might not be named Black Attack, but we do all have a Black Attack. And there is a constant negotiation of presentation of self. And I think if you're marginalized, right, you experience that even more. But just our inner desires kind of being uh, flattened or, you know, shaped by what we feel is Mm. acceptable and what 
what we should be doing in certain instances. And in a larger context, I think for Bria, that's a bit of what she was trying to resist initially, the idea that she should just get a job and start that career track, right? She had this desire physically and mentally that she's exhausted and needs to take a bit of a break to figure out what to do next. But the realities of society and the demands of the economy are like lol that's just you just don't have that that luxury right now and so it's in the larger sense and in a way that i think is quite universal and i think is something that you know really stood out to me during the pandemic even though i was crafting the show before covid kind of hit the world globally was just the idea of how many, how much of us are on autopilot with our performances mm. and how long has it been that we, since we've checked in with that inner dialogue mm. and been like taking that leap or made that pivot that we have the urge and desire to do because it feels like, well, I should, you know, keep going to this job, even though I don't like it because I've been here for 10 years and, you know, after 12, you get tenure or something like that, right? We create these other reasons that justify the thing we don't really want to do despite feeling compelled in another direction because it can feel very risky and scary in the face of all of the should uh, the what you should be doing, as society would suggest. To, to act as our most authentic selves to to yeah. to let that voice win is a is a scary proposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it because it is, and I think that's particularly why Bria, we I put her in uh, an accounting department for a very kind of stuffy firm in a corporate setting. I think the politics of politeness and corporate environments are a good example of some of the ways that we flatten to, to use that word again and kind of take away the textures and the differences mm-hmm. that make us so unique right like even when you look at the kind of word work that's considered workwear right the the colors are very in a very similar palette and it feels like you're being ballsy by wearing a red shirt mm-hmm. instead of <laughs> you know blue or gray and it and you don't realize but you get these little cues from everyone around you who isn't wearing a red shirt that you should be wearing something blue or gray and i think that's a very small example of how it shows up but it, it definitely applies to much bigger things too like you know wanting to be a filmmaker when you really don't make any money or anything like that. Um, but that does feel like your purpose or your calling. And so, yeah. Geez, I wonder who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder too. But I hold on, hold on. But uh, on that, if I take this out of the, the- theoretical and make it and bring it into the personal, I, I, I can't help but hear everything you're saying to me right there about like, hey, when you work in an office environment, you're, you're tampered down. You can't be your most authentic self. No one can, but in particular, marginalized folks can't do it. In particular, black women can't do it. Didn't you work in an office? Yeah, I did work in an office and I did not long enough to feel that way. I did always know I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I knew a lot of the jobs that I was working would be temporary in one capacity or another. But I did ever so often have that experience where it felt like I was in an office setting where it felt like change was possible or, you know, we talked, there was a lot of talk of disruption and doing things differently only for it to kind of be, uh, corporate version of what that looks like, which is still not that different for or that far from where we were. And that could be anything from like, you know, working on a campaign or trying to loosen up, you know, do more social things in the office. It just never strays that far from what is a sense of order and a sense of propriety on how we should all be behaving or doing things that just never felt like it didn't feel like you could 
be your full self or bring yourself to your job. I don't think you need to be able to say and do anything you want to in in every setting, but I do (laughs) think it would be nice and we can be more inviting to the uniqueness of each individual and how that can make for better work environments, get us better ideas, create better systems than some of the ones we have right now in society. I understand that now. I understand that everything you you observed from sort of the, you know, the, the macro of are these uh, initiatives and are these, the whether these initiatives be corporate or sort of like cultural, whether are, are they actually, you know, doing what they're saying, what, that they're, what they're doing. And also on a micro, like, you know, being a, a black person in a largely white office, the microaggressions you just face every single day. These are experiences that you bring into to Briamac. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, and except in this instance, the difference or uniqueness that you bring is literally you just existing. It is just the texture of the hair that yeah. grows out of your head. Yeah. It is just the the color you've always painted your nails, right? Yeah. Or, you know, I've always been a person that wears lots of print, for example. And so by just doing what you normally do in these environments, it suddenly feels like, you are sassy and you have a real edge. You're very funky. And you're like, I'm still wearing a cardigan and a sweater set. This is insane. (laughs) We'll be right back. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I want to play a clip from the show. So this is Bria and her mom, um, and they're in the middle of an argument. And Bria's mom has accused her of not working hard enough and wanting to take shortcuts. And I want to play uh, Bria's response. I'm not trying to scam the system. The system is a scam. What a way you sound like your dead stock pooper full of nothing but debate about blackness and liberation and interested in nothing but shortcut. Bria, how do you think I got here in order to give you the life that you're living? And since when is hard work beneath you? I never said it was beneath you. Oh, me. you basically did. You ever stopped to think that maybe you can work smarter because I already work harder? That's a clip from the new series, Bria Mack Gets a Life. Sasha, I find this really interesting sort of generationally. Can you tell me a little bit about, about this scene mm. and what you're trying to get at here? Yeah. So it's, you know, Bria, her mom has become accustomed to her, a very hardworking, studious type A type of person, has been on her for a while. They're moving to kind of like get her room ready for staging and all that stuff. And she hasn't. And her mom is kind of fed up with it and calls her selfish and tells her that, like, you know, she doesn't know what happened to her. She used to be such a hard worker. And Bria's rebuttal is that, like, I don't necessarily know where that was getting me. That was getting me a lot of burnout. That was me working twice as hard to get half as far. And I wanted to kind of update that sentiment that I think we hear often in, in contemporary Black storytelling. you got to work twice as hard to work half as far. And I was like, what is the, what comes after that, though? And I think for Bria, it's that, like, yeah, I've been working twice as hard. And it's still I still don't feel like I have 
have anything to show for it really. Right. I still, I feel incredibly burnt out and tired. And, you know, I went to a predominantly white institution as for a university. I didn't leave with a lot of friends. I, no one's offering me the salary that you think you would get once you go to school and you perform in the way that I did. I'm still going to have to go out and hustle just like all these other students, except I'm also a Black woman. And so there's a lot of disadvantages that already come with that. And so I'm going to try however I can to see where there's openings and opportunities for me to leverage something for myself to, as I figure out what I want. And her mom on the other side is someone who came to Canada and she worked very hard mm. and put in that that sweat equity. And it has paid off. It has afforded her a life where she, you know, has a great house that she's able to sell in a career that she loves and be able to retire early. And I think the thing that I want to offer this conversation was that they're both quite right. Mm. Um, I think it really is a matter of perspectives. I think as you see throughout the season, Bria does work, try to work smarter and where there is a window, she can kind of crack open for herself to skip the line at the door. She tries that and it does work in her favor in a number of different ways. But also in the same breath for her mom, Marie, working hard did get her that, you know, that line where she says, do you think, did you ever stop to realize that you can work smarter because I've already worked harder mm. in that, you know, Bria grew up with life where she didn't have to worry about bills and having to survive. She can be focused on what's the best quality of life I can get for myself because I have these certain base necessities met, you know, through my mom's hard work. Whereas Marie only knew through grit to be able to get what you want. And I think that does reflect a very current ongoing generational difference between, you know, Gen X and some boomers and Gen Z and millennials. And I think I, I myself am a millennial straddle that line of where, you know, I grew up in the hustle, hustle culture era of being a millennial. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, hustle, hustle till you die type yeah. of thing. And I think a lot of us, especially in the pandemic, realize like, oh, well, I have been hustling and I, I'm really quite tired. Yeah. Why, why was I waking up at 4 a.m. every day? Why? Why? For exactly, what? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that's what that combo represents. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing to talk about. I mean, I was just reading about the the show. I, I read a, um, I guess it was a blurb or like a, a review. I guess it was a blurb. It was the TIFF blurb about, about the show. Oh, yes. And it described the show as a descendant of Issa Rae's work. You know, Issa Rae, for people who don't know, mm. best known for the hit show Insecure. And I'm sure that's a, a great compliment, you know, Issa Rae, you know, an yeah. incredible filmmaker, a great, great TV maker. You know, I remember I, I was fortunate enough to talk to her one time. And uh, when we were sitting down talking, you know, she she described to me that she wanted to make something different. She said, I remember she said, I wanted to make Curb Your Enthusiasm, but for black women. And Ooh. and it made me think that we don't in Canada. This is a Canadian show you made here, Brie Mackett's mm -hmm. Life. It's funny and it's really boundary pushing. We don't see stories about young black women navigating adulthood here in Canada that are able to push boundaries and be funny, and I hope you take this in the best way, weird as this show yeah. is. Why do you think yeah. that is? Uh, I, think, I think Blackness on a whole, especially in media, will always be seen as political one way or another. Yeah. And I think sometimes in Canada, we can be a bit risk adverse with our storytelling and, and things that are political can be a bit more risky than normal. And so I think, I think it can also be hard to, when we do have access to black media from the States in terms of kind of seeing the, 
value of creating original programming when we could, you know, when that same audience could be brought in by licensing different projects. And I also don't know if the country was ready, to be honest. I think I... And by that, I mean that to, to confront some of the things that the show is saying through humor, right? But it is making certain statements about what it is like to be a young Black woman living in a major city in Canada. And I don't know if Canada was as ready for that kind of show. I mean, the show was in development before the racial reckoning, but I think it does take the existence of an insecure and a chewing gum mm. and, 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 and that kind of has warmed up. I think the country to get something as biting maybe as Bria. I'm glad you agree when I said it was weird. Yeah, no, I told that's my favorite compliment. I feel like <laughs> overall this is, I think comedy has always been one of our, our best offerings as a, as a nation media wise and the weirder, the better, the more we can get into the specificity of what it means to be Canadian from coast to coast and the oddities of that experience and tell it in weird ways, the more unique our storytelling will feel and even more Canadian, I think. Sasha, I love the show. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. All right, that's it for this episode of Q. If you want to get in touch with me, Q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. I'm also on the old Instagram, even though I'm really, I really am doing my best not to look at any of it, but uh, I'm on Instagram all the time. I'm at Tom Joe Power there, and I check the DMs and all that stuff. The other conversation we have up is with the lead singer and leader of the band Wilco, Jeff Tweedy. Really interesting conversation about how they're the most unpredictable band in rock music and how that's very intentional in the philosophy of the band. It's really, it's more interesting than making it sound. Okay, go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.